TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers and his first-hand experience of the Gulf of Tonkin deception. It was the evening of December 18, 2007, and I was setting up my recording equipment in an unfamiliar downtown San Francisco conference room. The events coordinator of the Republican Roundtable had offered me an invitation to record Daniel Ellsberg, and of course I said yes, in spite of the unfamiliar venue. One of the guests walked past me and said matter-of-factly, Ellsberg is a traitor, and proceeded to his chair. And by the time that Daniel Ellsberg arrived, I was certain there were only two people in the room who were not Republican. And here's my 2007 program. When Daniel Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers in 1971, they revealed the U.S. government's lies about the war on Vietnam. Thirty-five years later, Ellsberg received the Right Livelihood Award, the so-called Alternative Nobel Prize for, quote, putting peace and truth first, at considerable personal risk, and dedicating his life to inspiring others to follow his example, end quote. Today, Ellsberg campaigns and risks arrest in actions against war in the Middle East. With great urgency, he appeals to government insiders in the Bush administration to come out with a new set of Pentagon papers regarding an attack on Iran. End quote. Ellsberg served in the Marine Corps from 1954 to 57. Now he will take you back to Korea, Eisenhower, the Suez Canal incident, and all the way up to August 4, 1964, his first day at work at the Pentagon, the day of the alleged attack in the Gulf of Tonkin. Here is Daniel Ellsberg. It is true that I would not have been studying Vietnam with the Pentagon Papers if I would not been in Vietnam for two years and seen it very close up, seen the war very close up. And that would not have happened as a civilian for two years, which I was in the State Department, if I hadn't been in the Marine Corps. I wouldn't have been in the uh, Marine Corps if it hadn't been for uh, the Korean War. I wouldn't have been in Korea, as I say, unless Harry Truman who I then revered, and I revere him less now, actually, in contrast to a lot of other people, looking back on it, had not sent Marines and other troops, American troops, to Korea without benefit of a congressional declaration of war, which was the first time that a president had really committed us to a major conflict, other than a repelling a raid or some kind of a very small intervention in Mexico or elsewhere, without a declaration of war by Congress as the Constitution envisions and requires. And I recall that the person who led the fight or criticism of that action was a man then known as Mr. Republican, Robert Taft, who was not actually a hero of mine at that time. But I look back and see that when Taft said that this was a precedent that would be very dangerous, that it was unconstitutional what Truman was doing, and that this was a part of the Constitution that should not be negated 
or ignored. Um, I didn't pay too much attention to that. Coming out of World War II, uh, very patriotic, young American, I was 10 at Pearl Harbor, I'm 76 now. I remember that day very well. Uh, revered the Commander-in-Chief, uh, FDR, during the war. Uh, grew up on newsreels and as I was growing up. And I wasn't too concerned about um, who got us into a war against what seemed to be, what was, in fact, clear-cut aggression. I grew up, in other words, believing that the United States opposed aggression, that that's what brought us into the Second World War, and that the mission that, that um, Truman described, essentially of a police force, he chose to call it a police action, to obscure the unconstitutional aspects of what he was doing. That sounded like a good mission for the United States. And uh, as I say, the criticism was largely from Taft and a few other Republicans, and I tended to discount that mistakenly. Taft was right. It not only was unconstitutional, but that was part of the Constitution uh, that should not have been amended or rejected. I went in the Marines in 54 and was in for two years, but I extended for a third year because my battalion was slated to go to the Middle East. We had been given briefings, secret briefings, which was unusual for us Marines, that conflict was likely uh, over Suez. And of course, the Suez crisis did ensue. And at one point, we were sailing toward the southeast corner of the Mediterranean, the juncture of uh, Suez and Egypt and Israel. Israel and England and France having conspired, I'll just give you a one minute background on the Suez Crisis, some of you are old enough to remember and others are not, having conspired, in a very literal sense, to provoke, uh, to give themselves an excuse to invade the Suez Canal and retake it from Egypt, which had nationalized it. And uh, as the training officer at that point I'd, uh, of the battalion, I was asked to get a little background on the Suez Crisis and brief it to the officers on the ships which I did. I went from ship to ship talking about the background. So I, we had encyclopedias on the ship, in the ship's library, and some books, few books, and I read what I could. And to my amazement, discovered that as far as I could tell, Nasser had every legal right to nationalize the canal, that he hadn't committed aggression uh, doing that. And uh, uh, that the British uh, efforts against that were very clearly colonial, or the last colonial gas. Sorry to jump over a lot of other things, when the British and French bombed Port Said, uh, the, the harbor, and then troops landed allegedly to separate Egypt, the Egyptian forces and the Israeli forces, but actually entirely on the side of Israel. In other words, a great deal of lying went on by the British and French and the Israelis, which angered Eisenhower very much because he was lied to himself. As the event wore on, it became clear that Eisenhower was defining uh, this action as aggression in the sense of the UN Charter. It had not been authorized by the UN Security Council. It was not in response to an attack. It was a crime against the peace. And he was making that charge against our closest allies, not just from World War II, but from NATO. He was calling our, our closest ally an aggressor and saying, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. The point I wanted to make was that uh, as a very patriotic 
American working for a Republican commander-in-chief, I was proud of our president. I had not voted for Eisenhower, uh, but I thought, this is, this is wonderful. This is American. This is taking a stand on principle and using the power of the U.S. here, even uh, when our closest allies have uh, transgressed here, basically. And he's standing up for a very important international principle. So I was proud as an American. I was proud of my president as an American and as a Marine. I must say it did not occur to me that, and I'm jumping ahead here, and I'll say something that may be in this group controversial, but to me it's, it's not it's straightforward. It had not occurred to me that as a citizen of this country, I would see my country engage in aggression against Iraq. You know, there are many things people say about it, uh, all, all true, critical things. Ill-planned, ill-conceived, disastrous. Perhaps some people here will want to discuss that later or disagree with me, but um, ill-planned, there are not too many disagreements with that. McCain makes that point on every speech. But beyond that, a crime against the peace. In between, of course, I'd gone through a good deal of evolution. Not in my attitude toward communism, which uh, then and now I see, you know, as a totally tyrannical, despotic uh, regime. But in my attitude toward not so much the United States, but toward presidential power, the idea of unchecked presidential power, which Taft warned against rightly, I came to see, very, one way of putting it was, I came to see that Taft had been right in 1950, even if Korea were worth fighting. But to do it without congressional declaration, without authorization, was a bad precedent and served us very badly on Vietnam and Iraq and the future, uh, so forth. Now, that was a Democratic uh, president, of course. Let me move ahead. Under Eisenhower, I became a specialist in the command and control of nuclear weapons and the design of nuclear war plans, working on the question of delegation or devolution, they called it, of presidential authority in the event of a nuclear attack. How to maintain presidential or something like presidential control of nuclear weapons if the president himself had been destroyed in an attack on Washington. And as I say, there's that planning uh, is somewhat in the uh, news, or it should be more in the news now. An awful lot of planning has been going on like that ever since, now related to terrorist attack, which of course is possible, or to civil disturbances of other kinds defined by the president, which call for a degree of martial law in the eyes of the current president, and he didn't start that planning. In 1964, in order better to understand the workings of the government that might lead to a nuclear war, which is what I've been studying. I was involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis and did a study of nuclear crises as a result of that because I could see the possibility that by a mistake, a false alarm, an accident, the world could blow up. It came amazingly close to that, horribly close to that in the Cuban Missile Crisis, more than anyone knew in the government even in 62. Well, having studied that, I joined the government in order to see it from the inside. And by coincidence, my first day as a full-time employee, having been a 
having been a consultant for six years, uh, uh, eventually at a very high level of uh, clearance. My first day happened to be August 4th, 1964. How many people remember that day? It was the day of the alleged attack on our destroyer in the Tonkin Gulf. Now, on August 2nd, during the night of Saturday night in Washington and the morning of uh, Sunday in the Tonkin Gulf, 12 hours time difference off the North Vietnamese coast, an amazing event happened that had not happened in Korea uh, or since the Second World War. There was an attack on American warship. The torpedoes missed. Johnson met with his advisors Sunday morning to discuss this and rather quickly dismissed after discussion with them any thought of retaliating to that attack uh, on the grounds that they quickly decided as the Republican CIA head McCone pointed out. The North Vietnamese undoubtedly were associating our destroyer with some covert clandestine attacks we had conducted the night before on North Vietnam, which North Vietnam was complaining about, but we were denying that it happened, or in any case that we knew anything about it, which was false. So a retaliation would perhaps raise questions about how had this arisen, what in the world are they doing attacking us, and it might have come out that we had a program of attacks on North Vietnam called the 34A program, sabotage, shelling, kidnapping, uh, mortaring, various things. And that had happened the night before. And they figured that the North Vietnamese had associated our destroyer patrol with those torpedo boat attacks in which they would have been correct. There was an association. And the destroyers in particular were going in very close to the shore. Uh, they claimed a, as I recall, a 12-mile limit, as did China. And we were going in something like nine miles or, or less even, specifically making runs at the shore to provoke them to turning on their radars so we could plot the radars and uh, prepare for an invasion. This was 64 now. Two days passed, and my first day now on the job was August 4th, by coincidence. And of course, I'd read about this in the papers before that. And I started reading the cables, and I'm sitting at a desk uh, outside my boss's office. I was the special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, former Harvard Law professor named John T. McNaughton. And I was to work on Vietnam for him. So he was down the hall at about 9 o'clock with McNamara because early that morning they'd gotten word that the two destroyers that Johnson had now sent out, two destroyers that were going very close to Vietnamese waters, he doubled the patrol, believed that there was a, an ambush in preparation. They believed they were being shadowed at some distance by patrol boats. They were shadowing them. They were shadows, as a matter of fact. Now there's a second attack, supposedly. McNaughton was down the hall with McNamara picking out bombing targets because the president had already decided that if there was an attack, this time we would hit them using bombing plans that had been totally ready in terms of entry points, fuel, timing, everything else, since February of 64. The Joint Chiefs had been urging us to attack strongly since February of 64, soon after 
Kennedy's death. So he's picking out bombing targets in case there's an attack. And I get the cable run in from the communications center of the Office of Secretary of Defense. A guy literally running, handed me outside McNaughton's empty office, a cable saying from the uh, Commander Herrick of the two destroyers, I am under torpedo attack. And minutes later, another cable runs in. Uh, the next one says, four torpedoes, I am taking evasive action, have come at me. Seven torpedoes, 11 torpedoes. We believe we have hits on torpedo boats out here on the radar. They're fire, we're firing at the torpedoes, et cetera, et cetera. They get up to 21 torpedoes. Now that was very impressive because intelligence had already pointed out that they didn't think there were 21 torpedoes in the North Vietnamese Navy. But, you know, you could have missed some. So uh, this goes on, the, the action goes on for uh, over an hour, instead of on Sunday it had been over in minutes. And then, the targets are all picked now. Then a cable comes in at 1.30 that says, in effect, hold everything. Herrick says, all the torpedoes except the first are now in question. We are investigating. It appears that all the torpedoes except the first one were uh, mistaken by an overeager radar man or sonar man, so sonar man actually, who was mistaking the beat of the ship's propeller against our wake as we took evasive action as incoming torpedoes. Now, he maintained for uh, really 20 years, I think, that there had been one torpedo. He was wrong, there, there hadn't been. But even at the time, one took that with a grain of salt because he had been just as sure of the previous 20 torpedoes as of this one. So he did say, recommend no action be taken until we have a chance to, uh, for reconnaissance in the morning, this was still dark night there, uh, and see if there's any wreckage. We think we've hit some of the boats. We'll look for oil slips, slicks. We'll look for survivors and see if there is any. And they did that in the morning. They didn't find anything. But meanwhile, the planes were on their way. And I won't go through the whole thing, except that that night, uh, that night, I heard my boss, Secretary McNamara, with my immediate boss, McNaughton, at his side, give a briefing on television following the president's statement announcing all this to the public. And the president said, and McNamara both said, I'm summarizing now quickly. This was, there was unequivocal evidence of an unprovoked attack on destroyers on routine patrol in international waters. We seek no wider war. This is a one-shot retaliation for this unprovoked, unequivocal attack. I knew on my first night in the Pentagon, I was there all night following these raids. I didn't sleep at all. And I knew that each one of those statements was false. Now, I thought that night there probably had been a raid. I thought that for several days till more evidence came in. Uh, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution was three days later. By that time, the top officials knew there had been no attack. And. Um, despite that there was some evidence for it, just as there was some evidence for WMDs in Iraq. But it was wrong. 
as in both of those cases, the president knew on that night, as he said that, that the word unequivocal was a lie. The, there was evidence that there had been, there was evidence that there hadn't been, but the evidence that there had been could not have been more equivocal. Uh, here's the commander on the spot saying, we don't know what happened, wait till tomorrow and let's look and go over our records and whatnot, don't take any decisive action here. Um, but that wasn't good enough to explain an attack, that kind of evidence. So they lied, said it was unequivocal. Unprovoked, there'd been another attack on North Vietnam that night too. So if there'd been an attack, we knew very well it was again provoked. Routine patrol, these were intelligence destroyers, I mean destroyers on an intelligence mission, uh, who were deliberately provoking uh, reaction from the North uh, for purposes of a later invasion, aggression, and for that purpose going right inside what we knew they claimed as territorial waters. The big one was we seek no wider war, which is what Johnson campaigned on. That was his, his main mantra of the campaign. Goldwater, madman, aggressor, major general reserve in the uh, Air Force, wants to bomb North Vietnam. Johnson, I don't believe in going south, in leaving, and I don't believe in going north. Except that his Defense Department had been working on nothing other than huge bombing campaigns since the beginning of the year, which everyone, including me, who had just joined, fully understood and expected would be implemented shortly after the election. On election day, I spent the day, I didn't, and my colleagues did not vote because we had more important work. We were working on a working group to implement the bombing program. We didn't meet as an interagency group the day before the election because it might have leaked out. We didn't meet the day after the election because there wasn't time. We didn't wait till then. We had to get moving on this. And it didn't actually start till February and March uh, but uh, because various things came in the way. And one other thing. Having been in Vietnam for the Defense Department in 1961, I had been convinced by advisors there that this was a losing proposition. It was not the, the place to plant a flag. Remember, everyone I spoke to, like myself, was a cold warrior. I knew no one in the Defense Department who was not trying to contain or humiliate or defeat the Soviets somewhere or other. And what was clear if you went to Vietnam was this was not the place to do it. However, I was given the job of working on Vietnam. My boss agreed with me even more. John McNaughton felt stronger than I did. We should be out. We must not go in. This is terrible. But McNamara didn't agree, and he worked for Johnson, and Johnson didn't agree. So we worked at convincing the public by whatever lie or omission was necessary to do what McNaughton and I believed was a disastrous idea, the bombing of North Vietnam. I was not against involvement so much at that time. I thought I was against it on practical grounds, not a good place. But once we were committed, I have to say, as a former Marine, I was not really against sending troops, I'm sorry to say. I was against the bombing, which I thought would have no good effect 
on the basis of much experience, which I had studied a lot. That was something I was an, a specialist on. That was not going to help. It was going to kill a lot of people and risk war with China, and it was a bad idea. And McNaughton believed that very strongly. But McNamara was for it. So we did our job. Now the question is, we go back to August 4th. I knew that we were, the Congress was being lied into a delegation of power, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. They thought they were just endorsing a one-shot retaliation to an attack, which they didn't know had not occurred. They did not believe, the Democratic Congress now, they did not believe they were uh, endorsing a widening of the war. They thought that was Goldwater's policy. Uh, in short, the American people had been hoaxed into a landslide. Almost surely if he'd told the truth, uh, he would have won. Johnson would have won anyway for a number of reasons, but not by the landslide. He got a lot of Republican votes there, crossover votes, because Goldwater was so wild and uh, without and who didn't know, of course, that, uh, that what I could have told them, that we were going to be expanding the war. We did seek a wider war. So the question is, knowing as I did that very first night and from days on throughout the campaign, that the campaign was a fraud in terms of its slogans, and that my uh, president, uh, who I would have voted for, and I voted in 64, was manipulating the Congress into what amounted to a declaration of war, but really an unconstitutional one. As Sec Senator Moore said at the time, there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the Congress to delegate the president to, to start a war when and as he chooses. It's for Congress to decide that. He said, you can't give an undated declaration of war. That's what Morse, Senator Morse of Oregon said, former Republican, and then became an independent. But everybody ignored him. He and Gruning of Alaska voted against the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, that's all. Question, what should I have done? That was Daniel Ellsberg. He released the Pentagon Papers in 1971 and revealed the Johnson administration lies about the war on Vietnam. When TUC Radio returns, Ellsberg will relate what he calls, quote, my own failure to act in time. In retrospect, he says, he should have released the Pentagon Papers in 1964 instead of in 1971, when the bombs had been falling on North Vietnam for seven years. He appeals to government insiders to come out with a new set of Pentagon Papers on the Bush administration plans to attack Iran. That was an archival recording of a talk by Daniel Ellsberg that I recorded on December 18, 2007 at the Republican Roundtable in downtown San Francisco. Come back for part two of this one-hour presentation when TUC Radio returns. Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, recently wrote a public letter disclosing that he has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and has only three to six months to live. Radio producers, video makers, artists, and writers are celebrating Daniel Ellsberg Week at the end of April 2023, and this is my way of showing him love.
and appreciation. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Our email address is tuc at tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.